All right. Well, let me uh, pray for us as we look to God's Word together. Our Father, we come to you needy. This Word is given through your Spirit, and now we need your Spirit's help to understand it. We need your Spirit's help to apply it, to have it change us. So from beginning to end, we are dependent on you for what we are doing right now. Lord, we need you in this moment. Guard my lips against error and lead us into truth. And may that truth transform us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we did over the holidays was play games. Anybody else like to play games? We got uh, people in our family that love playing games, particularly my seven-year-old will play any board game, um, even ones he doesn't really understand, but he'll figure out a way to play them. But um, have you ever sat down with somebody to play a game, and uh, you sit down and you begin the process of playing in the game, and then you get into it and you realize, oh, they play this game by different rules than I do. Maybe they had their house rules, or maybe you had your house rules and you never read the actual rules quite carefully enough, but you end up realizing, oh, we're playing by different rules. And you end up in this mess of discussing what are the right rules and then trying to figure out what rules are we going to play by. And if you're in the middle of the game already, it makes it very complicated but because you've already done some of the game and now you have to refigure things out. And, and you end up in this discussion of how does the game actually work? What are the actual rules, right? Well, in a sense, that's what we find here in Mark 2. The Pharisees have been living life, doing religion in a certain way with certain rules that they play by, and, and suddenly Jesus comes in and says, no, those aren't the same rules that I play by. Um, and let's talk about what the actual rules are, right? Who, the, these are rules that the Pharisees had about who was in and who was out, who should be included and who, was, who shouldn't be, and, and, and who should be categorized in, in what place and who should be categorized somewhere else. The Pharisees had all kinds of rules, all kinds of categories, and they were very different than the categories and the rules that Jesus played by. What we need to get here is that it's not just the Pharisees who have made up their own rules that don't fit with what Jesus has said, it's also us. We too have a deep ingrained tendency to make rules about who's in and who's out, who should be welcomed and who should not be. And Jesus came to expose our faulty rules and categories. As we look at this, we want to look not only at how this, these new categories that Jesus creates, the, how these impact our relationship with Jesus and how we relate to Him, but also how we view other people and how we view each other. So that's what we're going to look at. Three points this morning. Number one, creating categories. Number two, exploding categories. And number three, redefining categories. So creating categories. This is the Pharisees creating categories, defining who stood in what category and what the boundaries of those were. 
Now, this, this is the, really the key to understanding this passage is recognizing that in the first century, Jewish society was divided into certain categories, and it was based on religion and morality. And it was kind of governed or overseen by, primarily by the Pharisees. Everyone was labeled. You were either in or you were out. You were either a good guy or a bad guy. You were either a righteous person or you were a sinner. And the Pharisees, again, were the self-appointed rulers, governors of these categories. They define the categories, they set up their boundaries, and then they put people in these different categories. And these categories revolved around really two things. First, the Mosaic Law, God's Word, and how well somebody kept that law. And then secondly, around not only the Mosaic Law, but also the additional man-made laws that the Pharisees had added to the Mosaic Law. And so depending on how you performed, depending on how well you knew these laws, the both God-given and man-made, depending on how well you kept those, would depend on what category you got put in. At the top of this hierarchy of who was in what category were the Pharisees. They were the righteous ones. They knew and sought to observe every detail, especially the external details of every law. They weighed out their herbs and tithed on them, right? You're supposed to give to God a certain percentage according to the Mosaic law, and they, they did that with everything down to the little herbs they grew in the garden. They went through a special process of washing washing their hands and washing various utensils before every single meal. They were, they were ready to wash and make sure they were cleansed according to the law and according to their additional rules. They fasted. They studied the law tirelessly. They carefully avoided anything that resembled work on the Sabbath and so on. They were at the top of this hierarchy in the righteous category. Then you had at the bottom of the categories, you had the sinners, those who really lived without regard to either God's law or the Pharisees' rules. These were the two big categories and really the top and the bottom, if you will. You see this in Luke. Listen to Luke 18. Jesus tells this story, and you see the two. One is a Pharisee and one's a tax collector, and they're each representing the righteous and the sinner. Sinner. Right? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What's he saying? Thank you that I'm in the righteous category. Thank you that I'm not in the sinner category. There was a, out of this categorization came uh, some very clear social practices, right? Where you ranked on this scale, where you stood in this hierarchy, dictated how you viewed other people and how, who you would associate with. The Pharisees did everything they could to avoid those that were in the sinner category. They didn't want to be contaminated by them. They, they, had, they had gotten themselves to the, to the level of, 
I'm in the righteous category, and I don't want to be contaminated by other people. They have spiritual cooties, and I'm going to avoid them. And this wasn't just a, like, bad company corrupts good character. There's a principle there of you hang around with people who are, you know, rebelling against God and hate Him and, and just living their own way all the time. It's going to influence you, right? Um, we see that all the time. We see that on social media in various places. Um, this was more than that. This was like, they're going to contaminate me because I'm so righteous and they're sinful. Um, they didn't want to come into contact with sinners. And so, when they did, they would kind of do the equivalent of holding their noses through the entire interaction. Now, in the first century, this was out, all out in front, right? It was very blatant. It was well-defined, and, and we kind of hear that, and I, I think we probably recoil at it in a little bit of disgust. How could they be like this? How could they, how could they kind of do this kind of horror, disbelief that they would be so blatant as to identify themselves as righteous and other as, others as sinners? Like, we kind of know better than that, right? Um, you're supposed to be more humble than that. And so, we don't do this blatantly, but what I want to contend is that we all do this still. This is the kind of thing that is easy to see in others when they do it, not so easy to see in ourselves. But this categorization happens in every society. It happens in every human heart. We are always looking for some reason to view ourselves as better than the person next to us. We're always looking for some reason to think that we're different, we're better, we're superior. And so we spend our lives climbing the ladder so that we can admire how far we've come and look down on others. And it doesn't matter what it is, right? Here, it's morality and it's religion. But it's done in all sorts of other things, isn't it? Well, I'm educated, they're not. Or I'm not so educated and they're not. They're snobby and, you know, whatever else. And, think they're all that. Um, or I'm, I have money, and they don't, and they probably haven't worked as hard as me, or something. They're something less than because they don't have as much money. Or, or we do it with politics. This person is, you know, unrighteous. They're in that category because of the political position they hold. Or we do it with a diet, or we do it with our looks, or our style, or our marital status, or our culture or how our kids perform, or just our all-together, all-around togetherness. I seem pretty together. Boy, they look like they're a wreck, you know? And suddenly there's a category created, right? And these, these, these non-spiritual categories kind of take on spiritual dimensions, where we actually think we're superior because of whatever it is, and, and we're looking for something that kind of makes us rise above the rest. So if I'm not athletic, what? Well, huh, I can't, I got to categorize myself in the unathletic, which is kind of a lower category. Um, well, that's not a big deal, but I'm smart, and so I'm going to major on that categorization, and I'm a smart person, and that's the category where I'm going to look down on everybody else and think I'm amazing, or, or maybe I'm religious and moral, and, you know, or, or I have these particular views, and we look for categories where we can exalt ourselves and look down on lesser people than us. We do it. And as Christians, sometimes we're 
the worst at this. You ever categorize non-Christians based on maybe how, how good of a Christian they would make? Boy, if they became a Christian, they'd be a great Christian. What? But we, I, maybe it's just me and people I've been around, but I've, I've seen that in myself. Or that person could never, they're, they're so far from Jesus, they could never come to him, right? Wait, so some of us are really close to him because we've done enough good works or something, or our, our lives look nice enough? Is that what we're saying? There's these ways of thinking that we drift into that are dangerous. And, and then even within the church, people that are saved and know Jesus, we do it. Like, we create these categories of different people based on how disciplined we are, or passionate, or, or how much we serve. And, and, and we've probably all done this and had it done to us. That's kind of the frightening part, right? People have probably categorized us. We find some way to feel superior. And we categorize people, we set up boundaries. We have the same tendencies as the Jews of the first century. We are chronic categorizers. One of the areas that I want to take this passage and apply it to is thinking about us coming together as one church. There's a temptation. There's going, I'm just telling you right now, there's going to be a temptation to categorize people as you meet them. I don't know how we'll do that, but we'll probably figure out ways in our flesh to categorize our new church family members and to categorize them as, oh, they're a part of that. They, they were a part of that church. That's them. And we'll kind of say, you know, in our minds, that's the, that's the B team. You know, the A team are us here, First Baptist people, right? No, it, or, or maybe, maybe we'll do it based on, you know, how, how they come across to us or, or, or culturally or, or ways that they serve or ways that they do things or we'll, we'll have this temptation to categorize our new church family members based on categories that we create. And we want to be on guard against that. We don't want the us, them, bad guys, good guys, old, new, whatever categories. We, we have to be on guard against this tendency of creating tendency, creating categories that will exalt us to look down on others. So that's number one, creating categories. The Pharisees did it. We tend to do it. We have to be aware. Number two is exploding categories. And this is what Jesus does, right? He comes in and he explodes the Pharisees' categories. Our passage introduces us to this man and his friends that have been labeled and thrown into the category of sinners. Remember the righteous sinners? Well, they're in the sinners' category. As Jesus kind of walks along the sea, he sees this man, uh, Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Um, he's the son of Alphaeus. He's also known as Matthew, whom we know as the author of the first gospel. And Levi is a tax collector. His job is to collect taxes probably for the Roman-appointed king, Herod Antipas. And this is in the area of Galilee surrounding Capernaum. Capernaum was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so, on the whole, uh, this was a very lucrative career for most tax collectors, and it no doubt was for Levi. 
he would start by collecting the tax that was required by his employer. And again, in this case, probably Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas says, you've got to collect five denarii from everybody in Capernaum, right? And Levi says, okay, I'll collect the five denarii. And then he says, you know, um, I've got to set my own salary. That's kind of what they got to do. And th- they set their own salaries, and they were very generous towards themselves. So Levi would say, all right, five to Herod Antipas, I'm going to add on another whole denarii, and guess where that'll go? That'll go to me, right? So uh, I'm going to set my own salary, and here we go. I get a whole denarii from every single person in Capernaum, right? And, and so it, not only did this make them rich, it also, as you can imagine, made them very unpopular, right? And on top of that, not only were they greedy, collecting their own salary as much as they would, wanted, or, or as much as they could get away with, right? Um, but they were also seen as those who were collaborating with Roman oppressors. And so they looked at it, and they, they said, the general population looked at tax collectors and said, you've, you've, given your, you've sold your soul to money, you're just greedy, you're just taking advantage of us, and then you're on the side of the Romans too, you are in the category of sinners. Listen to what one commentator, James Edwards, says. He says, the Mishnah and the Talmud, these are Jewish writings from a little later period, But he says, the Mishnah and the Talmud register scathing judgments of tax collectors, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court, expelled from the synagogue, and a cause of disgrace to his family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Okay, so you can see, Levi was firmly in the category of sinner. And this is what makes Jesus' actions in this passage so scandalous. Look at verse 14. It says, And as he passed by, he, Jesus, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Jesus chose Levi. Jesus saw Levi. Do you think people in Capernaum really saw Levi? Probably not. All they did was they saw a tax collector, a sinner, a collaborator, a greedy swindler. That's what they saw. Jesus walked by and he saw a person. He saw a man in need of a Savior. He saw Levi saw him, he chose him, he knew him, and he called him to himself. He called him to repentance. Isn't that good news? Jesus doesn't stick with the categories where you just avoided these people. They weren't really people. They were just those people in that category, and you pass by them and avoid them as much as you can. Jesus didn't do that. He doesn't do that, friends. He sees us. He sees us and he calls us, no matter our background, no matter our category, no matter what categories other people put us in, he sees us and he calls us to himself. And Levi, for his part, responds. He immediately gets up. He leaves his tax booth behind and he follows Jesus. Apparently he had heard Jesus preaching perhaps, 
Maybe seen some of his miracles. He knew enough about Jesus to answer the call that when Jesus said, follow me, he left it behind. And he followed Jesus. Now you look at this and you imagine no one, probably including Levi, expected this to happen. Like if Jesus is trying to get on the fast track to kind of rabbi superstardom, which is what everybody assumed he was trying to do, this was not the way to do it, right? <laughs> this wasn't following the rules, playing by, playing by the rules of the game. Jesus should have been avoiding him, but now he calls Levi to be one of his closest followers. This is a man with a past, a very recent past, a past that puts him in the category of a sinner. Unclean, despised, a traitor, a hated thief. Jesus, by the rules that normally were played by, should have at least waited till this guy cleaned himself up, right? Wait till he kind of makes himself better. And that's how some people think of Jesus, right? Oh, well, I, I can't be a Christian. I can't come to Jesus. I got to get my life right first. I got to get my act cleaned up first, and then I'll come to Jesus. Jesus isn't wanting that, expecting that. That's not the way this works. Those aren't the rules he plays by. Instead, he calls this man while he's a tax collector. While he's sitting at that booth, he calls him to himself. He sees him right in that moment and calls him. As Paul says in Romans, while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. calling Levi, though, to himself, and Levi following him is just the beginning, though, right? Look at verse 15. It says, and he re as he reclined at his house, many tax collectors, so here's Jesus reclining, which is a way of talking about eating. They're, they're, that's the way they, they kind of sat around the table as they ate there in the Middle East in the first century. And as he reclined at his table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So here's Jesus sitting at Levi's house, eating a meal with a bunch of people who were what? Sinners. They were in that category of sinners. That's who they were. Maybe think of the categories you tend to make and the categories who are down the hierarchy and whatever your categorizations are, think of those people down the ladder in your hierarchy. I know it's hard to swallow that we do that, but we do. You have that. And, and so he sits down with these sinners, these religious misfits, and, and Jesus eats a meal with them. This had huge implications in this society. It, it has some with us too, but nothing like it was. It's just like putting someone on your favorites list, your top friends, your speed dial, I don't know, whatever, right? Like these are the people that you have in your home and you laugh with and joy, and, and you're, you're more than willing to let people know that you're associated with them and you're friends with them. They're, they're, it was just this powerful expression of fellowship, of welcome, of friendship, of unity to eat a meal with someone. Meals were an expression, a display of welcome. And who you welcomed mattered. This was when the religious categories, when the boundaries were in full effect. You could 
be unclean by eating with somebody, by them entering your house and sharing a meal. This was when you didn't allow the sinners, that category, to associate with you and eat with you. And that's what makes Jesus' actions here so scandalous. He is sitting down and eating a meal with sinners. He's not celebrating their sin. Let's be clear about that. In parallel passage, I believe in, in Matthew, it says Jesus ends up saying, I came to call sinners to repentance. And that's what he did with Matthew, with Levi. But he is welcoming them to himself. He is treating them like friends. He's interacting them with them like they're real people, right? And he's in this, he's just exploding all of these categories and standards and boundaries that the Pharisees have created. He's messing with their sense of superiority, right? You see, when we create these categories of people and then we feel superior to them, we depend on those categories then for our sense of superiority, right? And if the categories are kind of exploded and the boundaries are exploded, then we lose that sense of superiority. It shakes things up. Well, if they're really just like me in ways, or I welcome them like they're my friends, like we're together, well, then I can't feel aloof to them and feel like I'm better. It, it flattens things some, and, and it, makes, it, it takes away that, that sense of superiority I had. Think about that. I think that often happens in our society. You know, even with some of the divisions that I talked about, the categories we create, what I was talking about earlier, you know, we, we think of the rich as these snooty people that are, uh, you know, whatever, right? Or we think of the, uh, the person who's battling addictions as, oh, yeah, they're down there on the wrong. Or, or this person in this political party is down there on that wrong. And, uh, what happens when we sit down with a me- at a meal and talk to that person face to face? Suddenly, kind of explodes our categories. Oh, they're real people with real struggles. Oh, they're like me in far more ways than they're not like me, right? It begins to explode our categories. And Jesus really does that in an ultimate way. (laughs) Explodes the categories. And the Pharisees are not happy. So that's number two. Creating categories. It's the Pharisees and and us, we're experts at that. And then exploding categories, that's what Jesus does. Let's explode them. And then he, number three, redefines the categories. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They kind of help move this whole thing along, right? They kind of set it up where Jesus can make the point that needs to be made here because they can't handle what's happening. And the implication in their question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, implied he shouldn't, right? Why would he? There's all these reasons not to. They're assuming he wouldn't. They're assuming that if he really knew and he was playing by the same rules they're playing by, he wouldn't eat with them. But their comment, their question, draws forth this profound answer from Jesus in verse 17. It says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This answer does two things. First of all, it tells us what Jesus' mission was, and then secondly, it redefines the Pharisees' categories. Notice first the way it reveals Jesus' mission. Think about a doctor. He uses this illustration of a physician, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. So imagine a doctor for a moment who spent all of his time with perfectly well patients. And, uh, you know, at times he was, he's accepting new patients. You know, you always got to check when you go to a new doctor, is it, are they accepting patients? And this doctor, what this doctor does is he has them screened before he accepts them and says, okay, uh, we got to make sure they're perfectly healthy. So you got to go through this screening process to make sure you're perfectly healthy before I will accept you as a new patient. Okay? All right. Uh, I got in as a new patient, and I'm his patient. And then I get sick, and uh, I call up the office and say, I need an appointment. I'm sick. Um, we've all been sick over the last two months, haven't we? Like nonstop. Like that, that's our family, at least. Um, so I've been sick. I, I need an appointment. And they say, well, um, if you're sick, you actually can't be this doctor's patient anymore. Uh, go ahead and get better, and then when you're better, call us, and we'll accept you as a patient again, and you can see the doctor, right? I mean, imagine that. It would blow our minds. You say, no, that's why I signed up with the doctor, because I knew I'd get sick eventually. I got five kids, and they bring home all these germs, and I talk to people all the time. I'm going to get sick, and, and I'm going to need a doctor. No, that's not what I'm here for. You need to get better, and then you can come to me, right? And we would, what is going on here, right? No, the doctor is there for the sick. His job is to diagnose, give medicine, prescribe treatment to help the sick. That's what the doctor is for, and that's Jesus. He came to earth. There's no reason to come to earth unless he, there, it was to help the sick, sin-sick sinners that we are. That's why he came. And the sinners that he is eating with here in Mark 2 are the sick. He's right where he should be. He's right where he needs to be to diagnose and dispense healing for those sick with sin. Jesus didn't come. His mission is not to congratulate the righteous. His mission was not to give a boost to people who were already doing pretty good. No, Jesus came to call sinners away from their futile and self-destructive pursuit of sin to himself as the promised and all-satisfying Savior. That's what he came for. He came to die the death that sinners deserve to die and to live the righteous life that sinners should have lived. He came to be the substitute for all who would trust in Him so that they might be reconciled to the God they were made to know. Jesus came to call and to save and renew sin-sick sinners. This is His clear and unavoidable mission. So these words first give us Jesus' mission. Secondly, they redefine our religious categories. Jesus here changes the rules or tells us the real rules that were always the rules. Think about what this says, where he says he didn't come to call the righteous. That's interesting, isn't it? It kind of turns the categories upside down. You would think Jesus came for the righteous. Like, those are his people. Like, he's righteous. So he came for the righteous so that he, they could kind of, you know, partner up with him and, and change the world or something, right? 
But he says he didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for the healthy. He's not, he's not their friends. They're not on his side. The righteous aren't. To be clear here, though, he's not talking about people who are actually righteous. Because those people don't exist, right? He's talking about the people who are pretending to be righteous. Who have compared themselves to others, who have inflated their own righteousness, who have excused their sins until they've convinced themselves that they've reached the status of the spiritually righteous and put themselves in that category. Those are the people. He didn't come for them. He didn't come for the person who thinks they have it all together and and thinks they, they don't have any sin and thinks they don't need him. He didn't come for them. It's like the guy who, you know, dealing with an, maybe an, an alligator in their house, and this is like in, if you're in Florida, but we're, we're, you know, with the web, the world is very small, so we've all seen the videos of alligators in people's houses in Florida, right? And the guy's like, I got it. I can wrestle an alligator, and, you know, he rolls up his sleeves, and no problem, and you're standing there, and you're like, uh, oh, so you don't need me, and you're, you're a professional alligator wrestler, right? I know some of us guys have aspired to that, Right, you wanted to be, you, you could do it. You watch the alligator, what are they? Wranglers or something? Alligator cowboys? I don't know. And look it up. There, there's guys out there. And you're like, I could do that. I got that. And so you're the professional. You're standing there in the, your friend's house, and your friend's like, I got this, no problem. And he has no idea what he's doing. And you're like, okay, I'm not, I, there's no reason for me to be here if you've got this taken care of. And, and he gets eaten by the alligator, right? That's us. We think we can handle living rightly before God in the way that He has designed us to live. Jesus, there's no place for Jesus at that point. We've kept Him at arm's length. We're like the kid who, I can tie my shoe and I'm three years old and never actually is going to happen. No stroke of luck will ever get a three-year-old to tie their, maybe some three-year-olds, sorry. Not my three-year-olds, but anyways, and, and the kid just keeps pushing you off and saying, no, I, got it, I, got it. I want to do it myself. That's us. And there's, there's no place for Jesus there. And Jesus didn't come for those people. He came for those who will admit it, who will admit they need help. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to clean yourself up before you come to him. He doesn't put conditions on what you need to do before you will He will step in and help you. He wants you to cry out in desperation, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He wants you to admit you cannot do it. Aren't those better rules to play by? (laughs) Not only are they true and right rules to play the game by, they're, they're better, right? Some of us have tried the pretending and the comparing and the excusing to think we're all righteous. And it's exhausting. And we know we never quite get there. We still know we're, deep down, we know we're guilty. We feel the condemnation. And we're still pretending. And we put on a smile. And we come to church and act like we're the perfect Christian. And and, and we know we're not. And, And this is an invitation to just say, I'm not. I'm a sinner desperately in need of Jesus. Help me. Jesus, save me. I need you. It's interesting. That is so much better. It's it's so freeing, but it's so hard to believe, isn't it? 
The idea of earning, accomplishing, meriting is so ingrained into our thinking, our culture, sometimes our churches. And sometimes we love it. We like the kind of earn it thing. I can accomplish it. I can be righteous and get myself into the righteous category. We kind of like that thing sometimes because, well, then I can feel good about myself. I can kind of boast and pat myself on the back and look down on others. We kind of like that sometimes. In the end, though, if we're going to be honest and if we're going to have Jesus, we must understand we are in the sinner category. That's where we are. Not halfway, not partially. We are fully in the sinner category. Maybe we were the self-righteous, pride-filled, hidden sin sinners. Maybe we were the all-out, love the world, and go run after pleasures sinners. We were some sort of sinner, and we're all in that category. There is no other option. Without exception, we must come to Jesus as a sin-sick sinner, or we can't come to him at all. Can you see how Jesus has redefined the categories? There were two categories that we talked about with the Pharisees, right? There was the righteous and the sinner. Jesus redefines that. And he says, no, actually, there's, there's the, these are the two categories. The pretend that I'm righteous and deceive myself to think I'm righteous category and the people who realize, actually, I'm far more sinful than I ever imagined category. Those are the categories. The pretenders or the people who realize they need Jesus. So which category are you in? Are you a pretender? I can do it on my own. I'm in the righteous category. Trying to make excuses, convince yourself that you're okay. Or are you in the, no, I've realized I am just a sinner desperately in need of Jesus. Far more sinful than I imagined. Dependent on Jesus for every ounce of righteousness I have. Which category are you in? Think about the implications of this redefinition of our categories, right? Instead of righteous sinner, it's the imaginary righteous and the no, I am a sinner. Think about the implications of that. Two, two, two aspects of the implications. First, there's, an, there's obvious huge implications for how we relate to Christ, right? See, sometimes people can relate to Jesus like he's kind of a life coach giving me tips to help me live better. We kind of keep it at arm's length because, well, he's just kind of giving us advice and we don't really have to listen to him. That's the thing with a life coach, right? They can tell me things and I can listen if it sounds nice and I can you know, ignore him if I don't want to. But when we see these categories redefined and we've actually put ourselves in the I'm a sinner and desperately need a Jesus category, we turn from our sin repulsed by it, repenting, and we run to Him. We cling to Him. We hold on to Him. We trust in Him as our only hope. And friend, if you have never trusted in Jesus, come to Him. Maybe you thought he would never have you because you knew you were in the sinner category. Or maybe you realize I've been pretending this whole time and trying to put myself up here and refusing to rely on Jesus. Whatever the case, whatever variety of sinner you are, come to him now. Put yourself in this category. 
glory. I am a desperate sinner in need of Jesus as my only hope. And come to him. We'd love to help you take that first step because we're, we're a community of these, this category, these sinners who know we need Jesus every day. So first, Jesus' redefinition has huge implications for how we relate to him. Clear and obvious ones, right? Second, it has implications for how we view and treat others. If you realize that you're a far bigger sinner than you ever imagined, then it takes away that sense of superiority we talked about. There's no good guys versus bad guys, us versus them. No, I'm better than you. No looking down at others for not meeting our standards. Instead, the biggest reality is that we're all in the same boat. Sinners, all in need of a great physician, all drowning and holding on to the sinner who saves us. That's the biggest reality. So you could line up your other categories that you've made, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, um, you know, whatever, my ethnic group, your ethnic group, um, you know, whatever, my politics, your politics. We, we could line up all those categories we wanted to, but none of them compare to the category of, am I pretending to be righteous or am I just desperately holding on Jesus as a sinner, right? That's what defines us. And so it takes away our superiority, changes the way we view and relate to people, and it should shape the culture of a church. It, in, it should infuse a church with deep humility. I'm not better than you. If I have anything, it's God's pure grace. If I know anything of theology of Scripture, it's God's pure grace. If my life looks like Jesus in some way, if my views are in accordance with the truth, it's His pure grace. It's not me. I, I'm over here on my own. It's pure grace. It makes me humble. I can't look down on anybody. It also, this perspective, cultivates incredible patience. Like it's not like, I got it. I got it so quick. I figured it all out and I got it down and did what I needed to do. What's wrong with you? Can't you? Come on, get your act together. Right? No, instead, I'm like, I'm over here in this category. And talk about patience, like Jesus was patient with me when I was running from him. And, 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 and I kept running, and still I wander. How can I not be patient with others now? I'm so slow to get it, right? It leads us to humility, to patience. It leads us to show grace in the way we relate to each other. I needed forgiveness, and He gave it. He showed pure grace to me. I can't turn around and pound someone to the ground because they aren't fulfilling the law that I've created in my categories. Instead, I show grace. And where there's real sin, I encourage toward repentance. And I show grace. And 
get down and help because that's where I've been and, and I often am again. I'm, I'm often just down there needing help and needing grace and needing someone to try to wake me up and say, hey, sin is not satisfying. Don't go that direction, right? I need that. I need that grace. I need a family that will be humble and patient and full of grace. That's what we want going forward. As we go forward in one body, we want to learn to relate to our new family members that way. Not in terms of categorizations that we make and they're down here and I'm up here. Not in terms of, well, they're not performing the way I want them to. That they're kind of pushy or, 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 or harsh or whatever. No, in terms of, I'm a, we're all in the sinner category and I'm in need of grace. I'm in need of God's patience. And I have all kinds of reasons for humility. And I want to relate to my fellow church family like that. Jesus came for sin sick sinners. Praise God, because that's me. That's you and me. Jesus came to call sinners for, to repentance. Thank you, Jesus, because I'm one of them. We are a family of them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess our tendency to make categories. We even use your law to make categories. And then we use it all to look down on others. God, we just confess our sin before you. We admit our pride. Forgive us. Forgive us because of Jesus. We are all in this category of sinners before you. If we are your children, forgiven, it is by your grace. Thank you. Lord, may this message, may Jesus' heart, his mission be ours. May it shape us and lead us into the future, God, for your everlasting glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.